Please be taking out your Bibles tonight and turning to 1 Timothy chapter 3. 1 Timothy chapter 3, if you would please. First Timothy three. <clears throat> last week, last Sunday night, we finished our study of the very specific qualifications which God said that every man must possess who is going to serve as an elder in his son's church. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, and Titus chapter 1, verses 5 through 12. The next essential topic, which the Apostle Paul goes on to address here in 1 Timothy chapter 3, is a very similar list of specific and required qualifications which God said every man must possess who is going to serve as a deacon in his son's church as well. 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 8 through 10, and 12 and 13. However, due to an approximate timeline that has been worked out and which will be discussed more at length during next Sunday night's lesson, we are not at this time going to cover the deacon's qualifications. We will in time but not tonight. That's not to say that they are not important. They are certainly important. You look at verse 8, you'll see the words likewise and must in verse 8. So, yes, deacons' qualifications are, are very, very important as well. And there is a likely possibility, at least, that we may be having to appoint some deacons as well soon. So, Tonight, though, we are going to go ahead from here and focus on, instead of the deacon requirements, focus on the requirements that an elder's wife must possess, the same as an elder must have certain qualities or qualifications that he meets. So must his wife. So. It's like the children's behavior, just as surely as the children's behavior can disqualify a man from being an elder, so too can his wife in certain circumstances. So it is important that we go on and look at these qualifications for her tonight. And so the verse that we're going to be discussing tonight at length is 1 Timothy 3.11, which says, likewise, their wives must be reverent, not slanderers, temperate and faithful in all things. And it makes sense that if a man has that long list of requirements that he must meet, that certainly, whether he's going to be an elder or a deacon, that his wife, therefore, would have a few as well. Now, the first thing you probably notice as you look at that verse, 1 Timothy 3 and verse 11, is that it is surrounded by verses dealing with deacons, not elders. Some may say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. That's talking about deacons' wives because it's right in the middle of some passages about deacons. We've ended the discussion of elders in verse 7, so this must be talking about deacons' wives. Well, 
I would suggest to you very strongly that in the flow and the context of the chapter, that this is talking about both elders and deacons' wives for some logical and biblical reasons. First off, just plain old common sense would suggest that it makes no sense whatsoever that there would be no qualifications ever listed anywhere for an elder's wife, but yet there would for deacons. That would make no sense that for the most important work on the planet, that of being an elder, that his wife would have no, no, no qualifications at all. But yet a deacon who has somewhat of a lesser level of responsibility that this would apply just to deacons' wives, that they would have an elevated responsibility list or qualification list that an elder's wife wouldn't. That makes no logical common sense. Second reason that this, this list applies to both elders and deacons' wives, if you really stop and think about it, it is largely accepted in our brotherhood by well-studied commentators who have a lot more knowledge than I do that these qualifications in verse 11 apply to both the elders as well as the deacons' wives. And here's what some of them have to say. Brother Wayne Jackson of the Christian Courier in his New Testament commentary says this, the women in verse 11 likely is a reference to the wives of the elders and deacons. The Greek term is flexible, used for both women and wives. Brother Lonnie Ritchie, whom we've quoted a lot in this study, says this, Paul is giving the character traits that must be possessed by those who are the wives of deacons, but this would most naturally include not only the wives of deacons, but the wives of elders as well, since they are included in this context. And so it seems very logical that at the same time, sorry, and so it seems very logical and at the same time in harmony with the entire context, to take this word to mean the wives of church officials, if you will. Brother Ritchie continues, Paul begins by saying that they must be under the authority and headship of their bishop slash deacon husband, just like his children must be subject to him. After all, why should the children come under the scrutiny when you're considering men for the eldership and not their wives? Paul is saying that just as elders and deacons must be men with certain quality, their wives must be exemplary Christians too, which makes perfect sense. Finally, Brother James Burton Kaufman said, this verse on the qualification of elders' wives is absolutely mandatory to be observed. The wrong kind of wife can ruin any elder or deacon, which is true. And by the way, I'll just throw this in there. I really hope that if you haven't had an opportunity already that you will take the time, might take you five or six minutes, maybe, I don't know, I didn't time it. Really take the time to read this week's bulletin article because it talks about every one of our young men and young women needing to have this for their goal, these things that Paul talks about, because let's face it, we're not gonna add elders here just once in the entire lifetime of this congregation. If we do, we got bigger problems than elders because that would mean the lifetime of this congregation is very short. We don't want to see that. 
So we need to constantly, as the bulletin article for this week talked about, be raising up young men and women of, of quality Christian character, and it's never too soon to start training them and showing them what they need to be to become these cream of the crop, as it were, elders and deacons and their wives. So, what exactly are these four divinely inspired and God-given requirements for the wives of elders and deacons? And again, these are actually qualities that every young woman in the church ought to be striving to develop as we talk about these four. The first requirement is that they must be reverent. Reverent. We're going to continue here with the same Greek word breakdown as we've been doing. This is the same exact qualification we see that deacons must possess in verse 8. If you're still open to 1 Timothy chapter 3, if you look at verse 8, you'll see that this is the same exact quality or qualification that deacons must possess as well. They must be reverent. In fact, it's the same word. In the Greek, it's the word semnos. It is the same word. And it means reverent or honorable. It means one who is respectful and therefore worthy of others' respect as well. These, these ladies, these wives, need to be those who are worthy of others' respect. Brother Ritchie says that this word refers to a person who does a task with dignity, causing others to look upon him or her with respect and esteem. Brothers Roper and Clore said it denotes a serious-minded individual whose life commands our respect. And, and that's kind of the thing. If we're going to, when we have elders and, and their wives and deacons and their wives, these need to be people that we can look up to and respect. It's interesting. The same term, semnos. I'm, I, I'm sorry, you're looking up there. I'm looking down here. I got a small screen, so same thing. This term, semnos, is the same term that is used by the Apostle Paul in Philippians 4.8, a very familiar passage wherein Paul says, Finally, brethren, whatever things are true, whatever things are noble, that term noble, semnos. Whatever things are true, in other words, whatever things are honorable, and he goes through this list, let your mind dwell on these things, that honorable, respectful, noble, that semnos, that is a quality or qualification that the wife of an elder needs to have, or a potential elder. This is also the same term that the Apostle Paul used regarding what all older men in the church it ought to be when he wrote in Titus 2.2 that the older men should be sober, reverent, semno. See, these, again, these aren't just things that, oh, well, I think I want to become an elder someday, so I need to have this, or I want to become an elder's wife someday, so I think I need to be this. That's not what these terms are. These are terms that all of us should be striving for. The older men in the congregation should be reverent, semnos, honorable, respectful. Makes perfect sense when you stop and think about it. The second God-given quality or ability or requirement or qualification that elders and deacons' wives must possess, according to the New King James Version, is not slanderers. But perhaps translations like the New American Standard Version give a far better picture using stronger language. The New American Standard, for example, says not malicious gossips. This one, this one's strong. 
And, and I don't mean just in the flow there, it's listed like the rest of them, but as I got to digging into this word, and this one's strong, and I'll be, I'm standing in front of you, and I'm, I'm telling you, yeah, strong to listen to, strong to preach. It is of a very somber and essential warning to note that the Greek word for slanderers or malicious gossips is diablos. Diablos. And it means prone to slander, slanderous, or false accuser. Now, it should be real obvious the word in our English language we get from diablos. Diabolical. Diabolical. This is a strong word. What may be a little lesser known fact about the word diablos is this. It is the word used and translated devil most of the time in the Bible. It is used for the devil in the Greek in Revelation 12.10 where it calls him the accuser of our brethren. And, and the term accuser there means false accuser. A false accuser or an accuser or a slanderer of our brethren. This is, like I said, really strong. Of the 38 times that this word diablos occurs in the King James Version of the New Testament, 35 out of 38, it's devil. 35 out of 38, it's devil. Two times, it's translated false accuser. One time, right here in 1 Timothy 3.11, it is translated as slanderer. Brother Richie said, this word, diablos, means to accuse falsely. It denotes one, I'm sorry, it denotes those who are given to fault finding with the conduct of others and who then spread their criticisms all around the church. The wife of a church leader must not be a tongue wagger and a gossip. That's, that's God's message. This is very similar to what the younger widow women were doing that the Apostle Paul called busybodies in 1 Timothy chapter 5 and verse 13 when he said of those younger widow women, they were wandering about from house to house and not only idle but also gossips and busybodies saying things which they ought not. That's a pretty good description of the same thing that God is saying here that the wives of elders cannot be or deacons. I want you to think about this. I don't want an answer. I just want you to think about it. What could possibly be worse in the church than for an elder especially, one who has to handle some extremely fragile, sensitive, volatile, personal, and family issues of certain members of the congregation or any members of the congregation than to have a wife who cannot keep such discussions private. What could be much more dangerous? Think about that. Or to have a wife who, as an elder, due to either a personal preference, conclusion, or private disagreement, or difference of opinion or perhaps personality conflict with some other member of the congregation has to run around all the time and talk about that other person and their difference of opinion with them to anybody who will listen. Can you see why this would get pretty nasty pretty quick? 
Now, let's straighten something out. You always have to talk about this when you talk about gossip and slander. I have to throw this in every time that I come to this topic. There is a difference between, and we can go into Greek terms some other time. I've got to study on it. I can send you the sheet in a Word document, okay? There is a big difference between gossip and slander and speaking the truth in love. There's a whole world of difference. Gossip and slander has to do with evil intentions toward the person. Speaking the truth in love has to do with positive intentions toward the person. Do you see the difference? If I come to you and I say, or, or, or you know, some church leader's wife comes to you, or anybody, brother or sister, doesn't matter who it is, comes to you and says, I'm really concerned. Brother or sister so-and-so, man, I saw him the other day in XYZ, ABC, and we really need to pray. Do you, do you know them well enough that, that you could go with me? And, I mean, some, I am, my heart's breaking for them. Okay, you know what that is? That's speaking the truth in love, okay? The difference is, if I come to you about that same person, say, well, brother or sister so-and-so finally revealed their true colors, didn't they? I told you that person was a XYZ, ABC. That's slander. That's evil intentions behind it. It's the same basic message, but it, intend, it, it depends on your intentions. And so let's, let's have that discussion and get that out of the way. As we mentioned when we talked about one of the qualifications an elder himself must possess in 1 Timothy 3.3, when we quoted West, like her husband, if he's an elder, she cannot be one who goes around with a chip on her shoulder either. Can you imagine again the devastation that could be caused in a congregation, especially if her husband were an elder? Do you see the wisdom of God behind disqualification? Do you see the wisdom? No wonder brothers Roper and Clower said A.T. Robertson called such feminine malicious gossips she-devils. The next, and third, out of the four required qualifications we see the wife of an elder deacon must possess is that she must be temperate temperate or self-controlled. Now, this is a word you've seen before. If you're taking notes, you've got it. If, you're, if you've watched and been watching right along, we've seen nephalios before. It means temperate or self-controlled. We've seen it used in reference to elders in our study of 1 Timothy 3.2 and older Christian men in Titus 2 and verse 2. So having already covered it, we're moving it on to the fourth one. That brings us to the fourth and final requirement for elders and deacons' wives. They must be Scripture says in 1 Timothy 3.11 that they must be faithful in all things. I want you to think about that. You read that one line, they must be faithful in all things. What does that tell you about this woman that it's describing? What immediately comes to mind? Is she a Christian? Is she a Christian? Bible doesn't say she is a Christian, but it says faithful in all things, so you draw a pretty good conclusion here. She's Christian, okay? Is she faithful? Well, yeah, the text does say that. Is she faithful to the Lord? Uh-huh. Is she faithful to her husband? Yep. Is she faithful to the work and service of the church? Yep. She's faithful in all things. You know what the Greek word is that's used here for faithful? It's our old friend. The word pistos, 
Same exact Greek word used to describe not only what his wife, but also at least some of his immediate offspring must be if he is going to be considered as a potential elder candidate. We covered this in Titus 1.6 at length. Again, this is the same word for faithful that is used of our faithful Christian brother Tychicus in Colossians 4.7, our faithful Christian brother Onesimus in Colossians 4.9. It's even used of the Lord himself in 2 Thessalonians 3.3 and Hebrews 2.17. It's used of our Christian brethren whom Timothy ministered to in 1 Timothy 4.12, as well as adult Christian women in 1 Timothy 5.16 and older, faithful, mature Christian men in Titus 2.2. Faithful. And so as I look at that list and I consider it, in other words, elders and deacons' wives, as well as at least some of their offspring, must reflect the same type of Christian faithfulness as Tychicus, Onesimus, and so many of those other faithful and hardworking saints of the Lord's Church. And so that's our list of four. Say, wow, that was a really short sermon. That was first half. Phase two of tonight's sermon, now that we have covered those, is a little different. Phase two of tonight's lesson is one that I alluded to in our discussion just a few minutes ago when we were talking about the wives and not being malicious gossips. And I said, after that, can you imagine the devastation that such a one could cause, especially if her husband were an elder? And I specifically said, do you see the wisdom in that qualification? You remember that? For the rest of this lesson tonight, phase two, I want for us to briefly consider the wisdom of God behind these requirements in 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. I want us to think about the wisdom of God behind them. As a spiritual leader or a shepherd of the flock of God, it is vital that a man's life reflect the qualities, the values, and that he is living a living example of the word of God which everyone can easily see and follow. It is critical that these men and their families be this. Now, their lives should reflect the same sort of Christ-like example to all in the local church that would allow them to echo the very words of the Apostle Paul. Do you remember what he said in 1 Corinthians 11? Follow me as I follow Christ. These men who are going to be elders should be the type of men whose example is clear with their wives, with their families, with the people they do business with, that they could say, follow me as I follow Christ. And I don't mean they're going to be perfect, because they ain't. No way they're going to be perfect. There's not a perfect person in this room. There's not a perfect person in the church except in the eyes of God through the blood of Christ. Let's get that straight. But they should be exemplary examples, and you can see in their lives these qualities reflected. Now, although God's ways and thoughts and wisdom is far different from ours, though it's far superior to ours, Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, and 1 Corinthians 1, 25 and 30, it still should be easy for us, at least in some cases, to see God's wisdom behind these requirements for an elder. For example, 
Ought to be pretty obvious to us as to why a man has to be blameless and above reproach. That should be a pretty easy one to figure out, shouldn't it? In other words, why he must be a man who has built a good relationship, a good reputation, I should say, within both his own family, within the local body or church or congregation, and within his local community. Listen, you don't, let's say you don't go to church. Let's say that you don't know anything about the Lord. And you've got a man that you have respected for years because of the way he operates at work. And you've got another man who you couldn't respect if you wanted life depended on it because of the example he set. When the two of them start talking to you about church, which one are you going to listen to? Pretty simple, right? That's why he must be a man with a good reputation. So it's easy to see God's wisdom behind some of these. Another example of the wisdom of God behind these requirements, it should be very easy to see because God has spelled it right out, is when it comes to things like 1 Timothy chapter 3, verses 4 and 5, where it says he needs to keep those under his own roof, obedient, reverent, and submissive. And he gives you the reason why in the very next verse, because if he can't do that with just a small group, how's he going to do it with a bigger group? Paraphrased, but it's 1 Timothy 3, 4 and 5. And we say, yeah, I can see that. That makes sense. A third place that ought to be pretty easy to figure out the wisdom of God behind certain requirements is that he be the husband of one wife and have godly offspring. You know, yes, I'm exaggerating for the sake of effect. Yes. Okay. Let's say you've got a man that's been married six times. He becomes an elder because that requirement's not there. And you're having marital problems. <laughs> Chances are you're not going to go see this guy because you know what his answer is, right? Go find another one. Or we see the wisdom behind having godly offspring. You've got a man who's got six kids. Not a one of them. They're all wild. Every one of them. They don't care about being in church. They grow up and become adults. The last thing they want to do is be in church building. So you're a member of the congregation and you're beginning to have some problems with your kids at five, six, eight, nine, ten, whatever age. Are you going to go talk to him and look for the solution? No. Why? Because he obviously don't know what the solution is. And that's why you see the wisdom behind some of these. But, but here's the question I want for us to consider. And this is going to come right down to real serious stuff because the appointment of elders is real serious stuff. What about when maybe we don't see all of the wisdom behind certain qualifications? What about when we maybe don't see all of the godly wisdom behind certain qualifications? Or worse yet, what about when we're willing to take that requirement of God, when we're willing to take that wisdom of God behind it that has resulted in a certain requirement, and we're willing to tweak it. We're willing to relax it. We're willing to compromise that requirement just a little, because in our human mind, in our human wisdom, we want to see this man as an elder no matter what. And so what if he don't fit that one? If we could tweak that just a little, we could make it fit. For example, what if you were to say to yourself, 
I know this man has a bit of a problem with what we call social drinking today. I know he's got a little problem with alcohol. Not real big, he don't beat his wife, he's not ever gotten caught for OUI, but I know he likes his alcohol. I know that, I've been in his house, I know that. But you know what? You know what? That doesn't discount all the good things that he does for the church. Besides, he's the one that invited me to church the first time, and he's the one, when we worked together, he invited me to church, and he had a Bible study with me, and, and he helped me to see the truth, and, and you know what, yeah, I know he's got this little problem with alcohol, but, but you know what? I need to repay his efforts by intro of introducing me to the church by putting his name forward for an eldership. You see how easy we can tweak some of these things? Or what about this? I know that none of his kids are what I'd refer to as faithful. But man, every time that there's something to do with the church, he's there. And you know what? Doug said at the beginning of this study that, you know, or whomever, that it's got to be somebody that's already doing the work. And, and yeah, I know that he doesn't have faithful children. He doesn't have any believing children. But, 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 but he works hard all the time in the church. And man, I just like... Or thirdly, and finally, what about if we were to say, man, he and his wife, they're hard workers in the church, and, and I know he doesn't meet this requirement, but it's the only one. Man, the rest of them he seems to have down. Doesn't that count for something, all those years of service and sacrifice? And the answer to the question is, yeah, it counts for something. Yeah, it counts for something when somebody works hard in the church all their lives. Right, church? It counts for something. God said he would never forget a cold cup of water given in his name. Is that right? And God on Judgment Day is going to say to some of these people who have worked hard for decades in the church, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Isn't he? So yeah, that does count for something. Yes, it does. Matthew 16, 27, for the Son of Man will come in the glory of his Father with his angel, then he will reward each one according to his works. Listen, that man who has worked hard in the church for 10 years or 12 years or, or how many ever years, yeah, that counts for something. God's not lost track of the smallest thing he's done. But while God will definitely reward all such hardworking saints and servants and husbands and wives for their years of faithful service, that still does not make them qualified to serve as an elder if they don't meet the requirements that same God gave us. It just doesn't. Remember, the selection and appointment of elders is not a political, popularity, personality, or seniority rewards contest. Speaking of compromises like those last three that I just gave you examples of, well, let's talk about such compromises. Do you remember what happened to King Saul? Do you remember when King Saul listened to the people instead of God? He compromised God's specific requirements regarding the Amalekites, and based on his own human wisdom, he came up with this slightly amended tweaked a little bit, not quite what God said originally type plan in 1 Samuel 15. Do you remember that? 
What's Samuel say? Well, if you've obeyed God, well, what's that bleeding of sheep I hear in my, oh, oh, the people. Well, you know the people. Remember what happened to him when he tweaked God's plan? Came up with a better idea. Do you remember what happened to King David when he decided to move the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem? Understand this. David's plan was noble. It was a new milk cart, wasn't it? Want some old junk he found out behind the palace, okay? It was a new milk cart. It was, it was, the plan was noble. The intentions were honorable. We're gonna bring the ark of God back to Jerusalem. How much more honorable can you get? Both the plan and the process were apparently self-justifiable. David thought this would be a great idea. The people liked it too. You know the only problem with that plan of returning the ark on that new milk cart? You know the only problem with that? That wasn't what God said to do. Problem was, even though it seemed honorable and noble and, and the people liked it and David thought it was a great idea, the man after God's own heart, the problem was it wasn't biblical. Therefore, it was not acceptable, was not honored by God because it wasn't in compliance with his word. You know what happened? Death, anger, resentment, and disaster resulted. Until, light bulb, until David and the people finally repented, they decided to go back and check the word of God and say, maybe the reason we messed this up is we didn't look at the way God told us to do it in the first place. Hey, let's go look at that. And they did. And they did it the way God said after the death and the anger and the resentment and the disaster. And guess what? That ark came back. And it was great rejoicing because they finally decided to do it God's way after they tried it their way. First Chronicles chapter 13, 1 through 4, in chapter 15, verse 11, through chapter 16 in verse 4. But personal integrity... and submission to the word and will of God instead of personal preference and partial compromise of the word and will of God is not just something that those people submitting names have to practice. We say that one more time. Personal integrity and submission to the word and will of God instead of personal preference and a partial compromise of the word and will of God, the way we've talked about, is not just something that those who are submitting names needs to make sure they practice. It is also something that those whose names are being submitted need to practice. For example, and I've just picked one randomly. If a man, a Christian man, knows in his heart He's got this little problem with alcohol. I used this one the first time, I'll use it again. If he re routinely practices social drinking, not social distancing, social drinking, in public settings where he's away from other Christians, and, and he knows he's, he's got an alcohol struggle. And nobody knows it in the church, though, because he doesn't do it around church members. The elders don't know it, the members don't know it. Then his name is submitted by some very well-meaning, wonderful brother or sister, and the elders come to him and tell him his name's been submitted for possible eldership. It is up to that man 
who knows he has a problem, who knows he does not meet the requirements, who knows that he does not meet the requirements even though nobody else in the world knows. It is up to him to graciously decline. This is not a matter of opinion. He knows within himself he doesn't meet the requirements of 1 Timothy 3, 3 and Titus 1, 7 and 8 when it comes to alcohol. That man must therefore understand, hear this so close, that man must therefore understand that his faithfulness and integrity as a Christian on judgment day is far more important than and is going to far outweigh any momentary earthly appoint to the eldership wrongly. Your integrity on the day of judgment means far more than your appointment to be an elder or a deacon. Therefore, he must graciously decline. Not only is he not qualified to be an elder, but in this case, he has a far bigger problem that needs help and that he needs help to get help and overcome first as a Christian. And again, I just plucked that one out of the air. As we get ready to conclude, the point is this. Relative to that last point, any man under any circumstance who truly knows in his heart of hearts that he is legitimately, not, not just because he doesn't feel worthy, there's not a soul in here that's worthy to be a Christian. Are you, are you worthy of Christ? None of us, I'm not, I tell you what, I'm not. I'm grateful, but I'm not worthy. And we're not talking about a man who doesn't feel worthy to be an elder. No, no man is worthy to be an elder in the Lord's church. No man is worthy of going to heaven woman either, but we're made worthy by the blood of Christ. What we are talking about when we're talking about this integrity is if he knows that he is legitimately not qualified even if no one else knows or if no one else is actually willing to admit that he is not qualified for whatever reason, he needs to have the Christian integrity to be honest with himself, his Lord, his elders, and his brothers and sisters in Christ by declining the work, number one, and number two, then graciously and aggressively seeking to address the problem that is currently preventing him from qualifying to serve as an elder. Because you know what? We're going to need elders all the way down the line. And maybe somebody who's not qualified now needs to look at these. One of the benefits of this type of study is to look at these qualifications and say, you know what? Man, I'd love to serve as an elder, but I know I'm not qualified there and there. I need to go to work on those. Young men, I need to go to work on those. Next week we will continue with our final lesson before the selection process begins. Please be sure to read through next week's bulletin very carefully and thoroughly. And until then, please pray. We do need new elders. We do have men in this congregation that are qualified. Our job is to look through the lens of God's word and find out who they are according to him. But we do have them. So please pray for this process. Please pray for the leadership of this church. Please pray for those men and their wives and their children who will serve as our elders and deacons from here on out. And for the ones who already are serving, because they're precious people, and we've been blessed to have them. Tonight, the invitation is yours. If you are here and you have never obeyed the gospel, we would invite you to do that, or if you need to set up a Bible study, or if you need the prayers of the church, please come forward right now, would you please, as we stand and as we sing.